Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abigail Martin. And this is Robbie Martin. So we just wanted to do a quick podcast just talking about some current events, some things that I've been covering on Empire Files. We just did a whole podcast about Robbie's documentary, the trilogy, I'm sorry, the finale of the trilogy, A Very Heavy Agenda, called Maintaining the World Order. Check that out on SoundCloud if you haven't already. And check out the movie if you haven't already on Vimeo, A Very Heavy Agenda, Maintaining the World Order. Um, so I just interviewed James Risen this week, which was super awesome. James Risen is a New York Times journalist, and it was super surreal actually being in the New York Times Bureau in D.C. Um, but he is a New York Times journalist who basically has been fighting the Bush and Obama, Obama administration for the last decade. Um, he's done a ton of groundbreaking work even before the, war, the wiretapping stuff, but I'll just start there. In 2004, he was the first journalist to basically be told um, about the warrantless wiretapping program called Stellar Wind and wanted to publish the story. And him and Eric Lichblau, his partner at New York Times, tried to publish the story many times. And basically, they were threatened <clears throat> so much by the Bush administration. In you know, the New York Times was threatened. Officials kept saying that there was blood on their hands if they would report it, that there would be another terrorist attack and it would be their fault. I mean, can you imagine being a journalist? Like, what vindication to have the Bush administration tell you the next terrorist attack is going to be your fault if you publish this story? <laughs> so, you know, he's fighting with his editors forever. And and after the, they said, no, 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 they sat on it for over a year. Right after the election, he was like, can we publish it now? In 2004, they said no. So, of course, being an amazing journalist and knowing that he had to do it, he wrote his book, State of War, and put the story in there about wiretapping because he felt like, especially in the wake of the nation being brought to war primarily from lies from the New York Times and Judith Miller and others, he did not want to go down in history as, you know, not telling the American people about this unconstitutional program. So he he published it in his book and before his book came out, of course, he told the New York Times, look, this is going to come out, so you might want to publish it now. And it was a huge uproar and they finally published it and and that was just one case. Um, he's covered tons of things, the burn pits in Iraq, the electrocution scandal in Iraq. Check out the interview. It's up on Empire Files. It's absolutely amazing. But the most recent thing that just happened was he won a seven-year legal battle, basically, once again, um, by the Holder and, and Obama administrations to try to prosecute him and put him in jail because he wouldn't reveal a source that exposed some botched CIA operation um, in Iran that was trying to sell the Iranian government fake nuclear bomb program at the time when the country was trying to sell the Iran war. So it was a really serious story at the time, even though now we know that there is no nuclear program. And so, of course, Ryzen tried to get this story out and once again was threatened and published in his book and then was subpoenaed and spied on and fought for seven years. His alleged source is going to jail for three years or so. And so I just kind of spoke to him on the cusp of him finally not being attacked and under fire. Um, he's probably still being spied on, obviously. But yeah, for now, he's not fighting the government to go to jail. So it was super awesome to just talk to him about a bunch of stuff, how censorship works, how like these leaks work. You know, when as we were talking about in the other podcast, when you have anonymous government officials who want to plant stories versus people who are actually exposing stories and how they're treated and stuff like that. So it was just really awesome. And Robbie, thank you for telling me about his book, um, Penny Price, because it was really awesome and it was um, really invigorated me to interview him. 
Yeah, I mean, he's... I think he's one of the... I guess I just have a lot of respect and admiration for him because he was, you know, as... And I don't mean this in a negative way, but he, at you know, for a while, he was, like, as generic and as, you know, normal as, like, a New York Times journalist as you could get. And then over time, he started to get more and more you know, leaks and information and things, especially during the Bush administration. I didn't follow his career before the Bush administration, but during the Bush administration, like you said, he, he just was trailblazing basically all this amazing journalism during a really dangerous time for journalists and um, exploring some areas that were, um, you know, very threatening to the Bush administration. And, you know, if it wasn't the NSA wiretapping scandal, it was all these other just facets of what the post 9-11 Bush world looked like. Um, and, and all these just little personal stories that you just never hear about. I mean, the electrocution KBR story in of itself, which is so disturbing, um, you know, just the, le- the level of like criminal negligence um, and, and then cover up and obfuscation just in that story alone. Um, it's devastating to read. And then, uh, you know, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, but like, you just don't understand or you don't really fully realize like how far all these things go, you know, and what they mean. You know, you hear about a lot of the corruption in Iraq, almost like it's in a vacuum, like in a bubble, you know, you know about it, but like how, what kind of like trickle down effect does that have? And then, you know, when you read like his story in there, for example, about like when we flew in those pallets of cash to Iraq, the very beginning of the war, to bri- mm-hmm. basically bribe people, bribe all mm-hmm. the Baathists, which of course ended up not working a lot of the times. A lot of them probably used the money to buy weapons and turn into uh, rebels or whatever, like fighting us in Iraq. Um, a lot of that money came back home. Soldiers were trying to bring it back home to their families and shit um, because there was just plentiful cash given out to be to be given out as bribes to like low level generals and stuff in the field, they were given stacks of one hundred dollar bills, um, and, and pallets, a lot of this, like literal pallets of yeah, cash. They had to fly military planes. These aren't like it's like imagine like a pass normal passenger jet plane you fly in. All this money that they were sending to Iraq could not have fit in one of those planes. That much <laughs> cash. No, I'm sw- I swear to God, like yeah, that's in the yeah. book. They needed right. to fly a military plane filled to the brim with cash pallets <laughs> to do this. And then, uh, sadly, you know, not surprisingly, a lot of soldiers got arrested for fraud, financial, uh, like embezzlement and fraud for trying to deposit a bunch of this money, bringing it back to home when they came home. Um, and it's just sad because it's like, you know... To them, they probably just thought, well, the U.S. government's just giving out money to, like, war criminals, basically. Right. Or, like, warlords. You know, why can't we take some of this money? Like, we're, we're going to come back and not get shit. So it's just, like, stories like that are just super sad. You see how this stuff impacts all these different people's lives. Um, all these interesting stories about Canada, you know, the border crackdown on Canada after 9-11 that you never heard about. I mean, I've never heard anything about that, but you have to assume that all the post 9-11 shit really did, must have caused changes up there. But you don't understand, you just don't know how it affected people's lives. And so it's oh, just, yeah. That's it's just so such great important he work. In. Yeah. He hones in on like just personalizing all these things. Yeah. And, 
And um, what's really, what, I think the thing that stuck out the most to me was his book is basically like, you know, what happened after 9-11 and how the security state changed. And the excuse, the official excuse for not preventing 9-11 was, of course, how all these agencies couldn't get their shit together, how they couldn't get their story straight and the warning just what weren't passing over and blah, blah, blah. Well, if that was the case, I mean, we know like in the post 9-11 wiretapping age that it became a million needles and a million haystacks. I mean, it became so much bigger and and so much more unaccountable. You know what I mean? And so it's like, basically, there's this blank check given to the national security state that just said, we, we're, we're going to take anything. We're going to hire anyone. We're going to do anything because we have a fucking blank check. And so, you know, Iraq was just like this hub of where you saw all this corruption unfold, whether it was stealing millions of dollars from Saddam's palaces to the pallets of cash to giving KBR a contract to literally run the entire country. Um, the electrocution scandal, 18 soldiers died. And of course, if it weren't for that mother following up about why, they never would have known. It was just like the mom was just told like, oh, your your son was just a dumbass and brought a hairdryer in the shower, like this green beret. And she was like, mm, doesn't sound like something he would do because he's not a fucking idiot. And then, you oh, know, yeah, they, then they were like, oh, yeah, KBR. he didn't bring a hairdryer. He bring a razor, <laughs> which is still something you would never do. You know, I yeah. mean, just like, what the fuck? And I think that the story that really embodies all of this because people, once again, they a lot more conspiracy-minded people might think that this was all being like managed top-down, but really it was just like a million people filling this vacuum of like this blank check and and doing a bunch of stuff that no one really even knew. It's like a fire and, sale. They yeah, just gave out money. Fire sale. And and these total people sale. these people did half-assed work because they didn't have to finish the right. work. Nobody right. gave a fuck. That's what that's what it's like a conspiracy of total greed. And nobody yep. giving a fuck and no accountability. Right. And like ineptitude, not on like just because they didn't have to be an ept. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. It's like they just like totally didn't have to. And so this, this is the one case that he didn't talk about because it, there's an impending lawsuit against him from this guy. So I wanted to just tell the story really quick because it's not in the interview. Everyone check out the interview, though. It's really great. But this guy, Dennis Montgomery, who Ryzen exposes in the book, who's now suing him, um, he perfectly exemplifies everything that was wrong, like with this whole picture and how no actionable intelligence was really gleaned or even attempted to be gleaned because it was just like, we don't give a fuck. We're just going to pay whoever and rationalize these insane like terror operations, you know, and reconnaissance efforts that really meant nothing. So after 9-11, everyone was calling Al Jazeera this like terrorist broadcasting, Bin Laden's mouthpiece network, blah, blah, blah. It was total bullshit. This guy somehow convinced members of the CIA, this guy, Dennis Montgomery, that he had this like algorithmic, um, operation thing that he can decode lower thirds on Al Jazeera broadcast, like the lower third messaging that you see, like like telling news and shit. And of course, it was all false because it it totally was not real. But because the CIA was like so desperate to justify this spending, and they there was like really you know as we know now, there's there was very little threat. It was so hyped up, but they had a massive amount of funds, so they were paying this dude tens of millions of dollars in contracts for years to decipher these codes. Um, meanwhile, giving CIA briefings every fucking day for at least three months based on this dude's intelligence, not telling the CIA officials or any other government officials where the intelligence was coming from, but literally treating it like it was like top tier shit. Like, okay, we got this on the ground. Like they were grounding planes. They almost shot down a plane based on this. This is crazy. I mean, this guy was a total con man. Basically what happened years after they were using this dude, 
French intelligence finally was like, hold up, you're you're grounding a French plane. This is some serious shit. What the fuck is going on? So they forced the CIA to finally tell the French intelligence where they were getting this information from. Literally reverse engineered this guy's code within like a couple days and and proved it false, proved it fraudulent. So you would you would naturally think, okay, the CIA, even though they were too stupid or didn't care enough to try to figure out this guy was telling the truth, you would think that after the French intelligence told them, hey, this is fraudulent, bros might want to stop paying this dude and like doing all this crazy shit based on this guy's intelligence. The CIA was like, hmm, we'll just keep paying him. So ignored French, kept paying the guy contracts. You know, that just shows you how insane this really is. I mean, what the fuck, right? Yeah. No, it's that's it's, crazy. It's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what, did, what what was your take on his um, his personality and his demeanor? I mean, compared oh, to some of these it. other I mean, activist or more activist minded people. Oh, he was super humble. You could tell that he like didn't even really want to be on camera. He probably like doesn't do that many interviews. He was just extremely humble, very nice, funny. Just a great guy. And you could tell that he was just like happy that someone was like this into these stories and stuff. Um, And he was just great. I mean, compared to other people who only care about like fame and, you know, are all about like, oh, we're we're blackballing people who are on RT or they're blackballing me for one way or the other. It was just cool to to talk to someone and have a really grounded conversation about all this stuff who's like such a huge insider kind of yeah. reminded me of Wilkerson because it's like these are people who even though what Ryzen's saying might not be shocking to a lot of people who follow our work and who watch the Empire Files it's shocking because it's coming from someone who's like the top New York Times journalist yeah I mean he I mean can you imagine being threatened literally having Bush administration officials fucking threatening you with the espionage and act. Hol- holding it over your head for so holding long it over too. Your head for seven years I mean that is insane and am, am so, I wrong yeah and- Am I, do I misunderstand his legal predicament or was, is it true that he was, he was actually being punished for his NSA wiretapping story, but they were trying to use another whistleblowing case, like espionage, like case from a completely unrelated thing against him. Yeah. So, so the, so like they, it was like a punishment. he was on the radar. Yeah. He was on the radar for this wiretapping thing, but then they just made it about the Sterling case, which was this Iran sabotage thing. And so they just scoured his book, were spying on him for God knows how long. They probably still are. But yeah, I mean, they definitely, he was on the radar and they just wanted to punish him. So he he talks about how he was really just targeted beyond, you know, like the subpoena. Yes, it, you could argue that this Iran story was like important enough to subpoena the journalist who wrote about it, which is really unheard of. Um, but he definitely agrees that that's like just because of his work that they just wanted to just go after the journalist which is totally unprecedented because they hated him so much and because he's done so much damage to their credibility yeah they just found something yeah to go after him for but in reality it was like they were really upset that he revealed the nsa wiretapping story and the way that he did it is something that i think it's very important to understand exactly what he did too because when you're working for a media outlet, you know, you think, oh, well, you know, everything I write, you know, everything that I'm writing stories about or whatever, I need to get approval from editorial. And, you know, if I print something, you know, if something gets in without my boss or, you know, um, editor approving, like I can get in trouble, you know, but he did an interesting thing that, um, it was very inspiring to me to hear about it because it sort of, I mean, it made a lot of sense, but it was also pr- pretty straightforward where it was like they wouldn't print it 
you know, he, he tried to get them as hard as he could to get them to print it. They wouldn't. So he forced their hand by putting it in his own book. Um, and that's something that pretty much any journalist could do if they wanted to. They could go right. on their blog at any time and go around their boss and because this is not like the, as long as they're not plagiarizing their work, you know, like if someone for the Washington Post, you know, Washington Post wouldn't let them print a part of a story, um, you know, as long as they're not reprinting that whole story on their blog, like they they legally can go on their blog and say, like, I was contacted by a source who told me this and actually like tell the whole story. So at any time, a journalist can use their own you know, platform, whether it be in a book, a blog, a movie, or even an interview, you know, on the radio to drop information that your publisher, your editor will not allow you to run with. And you can kind of force the journalistic ethos, like to force them to decide if they want to comply with it or not. Because then at that point, it's a race where other outlets are going to start covering this if you're a credible person. And then the outlet that refused to print your shit will now have to print it. They will be forced yeah, that's to. Why, that's why I respect him so much because he was, first of all, not only was he risking his job, but he knew what the Bush administration was going to do because he had been experiencing the threats for the last year yeah. in conjunction with the paper. So he not only, you know, he was putting everything on the line, not just his job, but his life. Yeah. Like not, I mean, like not, he didn't think he was going to get killed, but I mean, going to jail, you know, for God knows how long. So it was a huge stand that he took. It and people really need to understand that, yes, everyone can do that. It's kind of like when I decided to speak out on air. It's like you, as a journalist, if you're on TV, if you're writing for a paper, you can push the editorial line. You can push the line of the paper as far as you possibly can. And and James really did that. And who knows if the New York Times would have ever published that story if he didn't force them to. And, and he really um, forced them to keep his job, too, because it would have looked so bad once the story came out, if he did get fired, it, it would have just looked horrible. So, I mean, he battled that paper for so long and then, of course, went through the whole thing all over again. It's like he just kept he just kept pushing. And he still works um, there, too. And he still works there. Yeah, I was really surprised. But I mean, he he only took a leave to do that story and and still gave him the chance. He was like, look, you, you still need to publish this because this is going to look really bad. It'd be really um, interesting to you know, have like an off the record conversation with them about what he thinks about Judith Miller. And oh my God, I know I tried, but it was like weird because I was in the New York Times and then I like brought it up. Oh, you, you were know? in and the then, office? Yeah. Yeah. Because oh, wow. I had, I wanted to talk more about the New York Times, but I didn't realize he was still like actively working there. So I just kind of mm-hmm. made it more about his case. But really great interview. Everyone check it out. Everyone check out Pay Any Price, his amazing book that just describes the insane government looting and, and private contractor looting. It's also an audiobook, which is really well done. And that's that's actually how I quote read it. I listened to it. Dang. That's awesome. I want to listen to that. Um, I wanted to briefly talk about so we've done a couple of great episodes for the Empire Files, but before we get into to those other ones, I wanted to first talk about Orlando really quickly. Um, I haven't really been meticulously following the story, but I was really outraged and disgusted with, of course, how the media covered it. Um, how Hillary comes out immediately and says it was an ISIS attack, how Bernie Sanders and Hillary uniformly are talking about how we need to take out ISIS in the wake of this attack. First of all, why are we all of a sudden associating insane people, what they say with somehow like the group that, I mean, it just like doesn't make any sense because this guy said he was inspired by ISIS. Now all of a sudden ISIS engineered the attack. It's like, 
really mind-boggling how this has somehow evolved into this because I feel like this never happened with like lone wolves. No one ever said like they were inspired by Al-Qaeda, but it's like if you just say that you're inspired by ISIS, then you're just plastered all over the TV and you're just like the new scapegoat for a war now. It's really interesting. When clearly this is about homophobia. I mean, the guy was fucking gay. He was, you know, his... It's very obvious. It's like he his gay lover spoke out. He said that he... It's just like it doesn't seem like a Muslim thing. No, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, there's pro- there's plenty of homophobic Muslims or homophobic people, homophobic Christians, who would never do something like this, never even consider it, you know? So it's like, I guess for me, I always go back to the Columbine shooting where if you really look at that, it's really hard to pin down a reason why they did it. It's hard to really dissect someone's psychology. Um, you know, it's hard to dissect like a killer's psychology, but especially hard to like dissect and explain like the motivation for like a mass shooter, which is something like very unique to our country that we have so many of these mass shooters who are doing it for completely non-political and really like non-ideological reasons. It's that's what it seems like to me. It almost seems like a lack of ideology, a lack of reason, really. Um, like, and Columbine, the media tried to pin it on doom, Marilyn Manson, being goth, wearing a trench coat, you know, all those things. Remember that? Right, 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 right. The public, I think, rightfully rejected most of those premises. Like, people who watched those explanations on TV, like, didn't buy it. I would like to think they didn't buy it. Maybe yeah, I'm wrong Yeah, but wasn't there that. a big push for like censorship on like tapes and stuff after that? Like I remember Gore's wife was like all about like censoring like the parental advisory thing. Stuff. Yeah, yeah that like, was wasn't before. That in the I mean, aftermath? that was oh, it was that okay. was way before. But I mean, oh, okay. I thought that was like a reaction to it. But people in general were not really buying what the media was trying to spin. The media was trying to say that it was like Marilyn Manson, that it was Doom, violent video games that caused this. Um. So, and I, and I think that that is a more healthy space for, I mean, not the media to be in, but for like the public to be in where when some, one of these things happen, we don't immediately try to answer the reasons why someone did something so horrendous and so crazy. Right. Like we don't rush and try to, because ultimately like the person's dead. They don't, they're not going to tell us why they did it. And even if they did, since when do we take mass murderers and like take what they say at face value as something like important? Right. You know, like right. we've never done that. I mean, it just seems odd that only because the guy threw in ISIS and he's Muslim and he's like a first, you know, second or first generation immigrant, second generation immigrant, um, that we would all of a sudden be taking what he's saying in, at face value and like so holding it in such high regard. And these like farcical arguments that have arisen in the wake, like, okay, let's ban terrorists from the watch list from getting guns. It's like, first of all, let's talk about who this guy was. He was a homegrown American born New Yorker who loved the NYPD, who loved fucking cops. He's like, has tons of selfies wearing cop shirts, wearing cop shit. It's like, okay, this guy was not like, 
he wasn't born in Afghanistan and like radicalized by the Taliban. He was fucking he grew up here. Mm-hmm. So what are all these weird arguments in the wake of it that actually wouldn't solve anything except actually go after a million people who are probably nonsensically on this weird list that we've talked about before? It's just a really weird political football thrown into the mix that first of all we're ignoring the fact that this was like the like one of the largest massacres against gay people like can we talk about the hatred against gay people and like the festering of homophobia in this country and like bigotry it's like it's just so weird it was just like another exploitive opportunity to talk about isis and how we need to kill them it was just it's just gross because to me the argument should be about homophobia and this attack against gay people and and it just completely got i don't know it's just disgusting you know, and just so much Islamophobia in the wake of it. It's like, yeah, a lot of these people were Muslim too. Like, and a lot of Muslim people who are gay are being attacked. Like, should we, should we be talking about that or? Yeah. I mean, it's just, what's just so pathetic and sad about it is like, all it took was like ISIS making a bunch of crazy as fuck videos for, for everybody to lose their shit here and just like completely stop being critical of like these narratives. And it's just like, just because like the way I see it is that ISIS is a part of the cultural zeitgeist now, whether you like it or not. They are like a buzzword. They're a household term. It's different from Al Qaeda because Al Qaeda was way more elusive, mysterious, and completely exaggerated by the U.S. Right. government. Right. There was never anything on the level of what ISIS is doing with Al Qaeda. Even their videos were super low key. Right. Didn't give a fuck about graphics. Uh, not even translating into English, they weren't even trying to reach us at all. They didn't give a fuck. Right. So for us to act like Al-Qaeda was this huge threat that was like trying to destroy the West before, I mean, you know, maybe people in Al-Qaeda thought they were, but I mean, their their organizational structure was like so low key. And all ISIS is doing is they're just like, wait a second, like people watch videos, you know, it's not that expensive to get like an HD camera and to hire someone to do like a professional video effects. And that's all they did. And just everybody freaked out. Um, and it's totally working. Like everybody is terrorized from afar by these videos they're putting together. And if whether people are being inspired or not by ISIS here, I mean, sure. I'm sure some people watch those videos and they're like, you know, they like think they're they're inspiring on some level to them or it's like you know it's like seems like they're really like anti-american so they like that aspect of them to me that doesn't mean that these people are being quote radicalized by isis like that term is total fucking bullshit there's no such thing as people being radicalized by isis in this country there might be some people like because they're like edgy teenagers who are like want to get, you know, the same people who like want to make like nail bombs, you know, with household chemicals would want to just like fucking watch an ISIS video and like cheer it on to be like edgy and like shocking or something. You know, there's an era of like being a teenager and a young person where you like, you just want to fuck shit up. Like you hate, you mm-hmm. hate people. You, you know, you're solipsistic. Like there's people, there's a lot of that in youth. Um, and I'm not saying this guy was like a young person and he was just filled with this sort of youthful angst and that's why he did it. I'm just saying that this idea of being radicalized by ISIS or this lone wolf radicalization is complete fucking bullshit. There's no such thing. I have not I have not seen an example of it yet with ISIS. Arguably, Nadal Hassan 
the the um, soldier who shot up the military base in Texas, I mean, you can make the argument that he, if he was talking to Anwar al that maybe he was becoming radicalized over time or becoming more mm-hmm. radical. That's literally the only case I have ever seen of that. And that's not even... He was being radicalized by like videos he's watching. He was actually apparently ch- talking to Anwar Alaki, like they had a relationship online. Mm-hmm. So that that makes sense. I mean, but I would still not call that an Al Qaeda attack, like all these other idiots were trying to say it was, or to say it was a radical Islamic terrorist attack. I mean, it really wasn't. It's just a guy who shot up a military base. Um, right. And it's so dangerous to gel with this narrative and just repeat it. Like, that's exactly what they want. You don't think that they want lone they wolves want. to be like, oh, I'm inspired by ISIS. And ISIS is like, fuck, yeah, keep doing it. Um, we don't even have to do anything anymore. And you assholes just will thank us and blame us no matter what. And that's exactly what they want. And people are just playing right into their hands. And it's outrageous. I mean, why is it that America has these unique lone wolf mass shooters? No other country has these other than the guy Anders Breivik, who was his own person. And we didn't actually blame his insane Christian theology on that shooting, did we? So, I mean, it's just amazing that you have this guy... Once again, you know, they did try to blame video games on him. Oh, 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 interesting. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That weird like shooting video game that he liked. Well, now he's sitting in Norwegian prison living it up. But, um, you know, he might get out in like 10 years, too. It's really funny, like the opposite side of the spectrum, like the most lax prison time ever for like a mass murder. But this guy was just American homebred, just like every other mass shooter that we can't identify what is the the real motive. I mean, it's a unique thing to American culture. It's the empire baby syndrome where there is no political ideology. There is no reason. It's just this egomaniacal, solipsistic, like mass murdering mentality where you just have to fucking take people out with you because you're too much of a pussy to kill yourself. Yeah. Um, And you're too much of a pussy to do anything that's like relevant. So you're just going to kill a bunch of innocent people because you have no fucking idea who you are or why you exist. So I mean, sadly, uh, yeah, I sadly I think that that's that really I think even more so than like a homophobia angle. I think that encapsulates it more than almost anything else, because in this country and with the Internet, there is this uh, increasing, you know, accelerating sort of like phenomenon of everybody wants to be famous mm-hmm. and everybody wants to have their name in the papers or on tv and at a certain point it's almost like people who are this desperate and this mentally disturbed having their name in the paper have like a murder suicide like going out in a blaze of glory is like that's good that they want that like that's the motivation um and that's speaks to something on like a just a deeper narcissistic sort of arrogant um kind of like lack of like ideology that we have in this country like we're materialistic and we have no ideology i mean to me that's like that's almost like a scarier thing it's like yeah people yeah you can talk about people like killing in the name of of islam or killing in the name of a political ideology but almost like that's that feels almost like more safe in some regard because that's a symptom of like a political issue. What happened? What happens with these mass shootings? It's like a symptom of like a fucked up American psychology that, to me, is irreparable, and that we we right. like as a and there's no country, pinpointing. There's no pinpointing because it's our entire culture. Yeah, exactly. 
you're totally right. Yeah. So, so I think one of the most disturbing things in the wake of the shooting was realizing that half of the victims were Puerto Rican. And it, it kind of just made me realize, first of all, I've been living around so many Puerto Ricans, especially in New York, that I had no fucking idea. And then you start to realize how little you know about Puerto Rico, especially in the wake of this whole like debt relief thing, the Promesa that just passed yesterday, finally. So anyway, we did this whole episode on Puerto Rico and it was just really crazy. So like this whole issue just kind of brings to light how many Puerto Ricans are really living in this country, that half of the people that got shot were Puerto Rican. And so there's these like... Um, just hot spots of Puerto Rican migration that have happened in the past 50 years or whatever, really because of U.S. policy in Puerto Rico. So when you start to look into Puerto Rico, first of all, Americans know very little. They don't even know that Puerto Ricans are American citizens, especially in light of elections. You start to realize how weird it is that America still has colonies um, when you're like looking at the election results. and You're like, what the fuck? Guam and Puerto Rico are still like colonies (laughs) like it was a really surreal thing to realize, you know, like in the 21st century, we're still colonizing openly territories that have zero political representation. So just really briefly, I mean, Puerto Rico is like the the oldest colony in the entire world. Um, 500 years under subjugation from colonial entities, 400 years under the Spanish total brutality. And then they were independent for like a day and then got invaded by the U.S. empire in the Spanish-American War. And ever since then, they've just been under the boot of U.S. um, supremacy. Um, They were ruled under like literal military dictatorship for a couple of years. And then they were given like a fake political status where Puerto Ricans can have like, you know, their own governors that they that they can pick in like a fake election. But then, of course, the U.S. still controls everything, trade, economic decisions. um, You know, they can't they don't have federal power. So it's really just this been this big facade which is like a fake status that really denies any real self-determination. And it was just so interesting to find out what they did to that country. Like it all goes back to corporations, this giant sugar baron, which was the first military appointed governor, or I'm sorry, the first civilian governor that the U S put in charge of Puerto Rico was also like a sugar baron and just like decimated the entire agricultural system and made like giant sugar plantations and then became the president of the largest sugar manufacturing company in the world. And then you just saw like all of Puerto Rico's agriculture was just devastated and they were unable to sustain themselves agriculturally. So of course you had tons of farmers migrating to the U.S. that couldn't have jobs anymore. And then you had this big push for industrialization under what's called Operation Bootstrap in like the 50s or something, where all this manufacturing moved into Puerto Rico, where all of a sudden U.S. business realized, okay, we need to set up like super cheap production there. And people will say like, oh, Puerto Rico has it great. You know, they're American citizens, which is great. They can freely immigrate. But... Um, And they also have like no taxes. Like you can go to Puerto Rico and just have like super big tax havens. And for some reason, they think that's like been good for the people when really what it was is just like a whole setup operation for U.S. businesses to go and have like literally zero taxes and just take everything out of Puerto Rico's economy. So here we are today where they are like in billions in debt to Wall Street you know, thousands of dollars on the shoulders of every Puerto Rican citizen. Four million Puerto Ricans live here. Four million live there. That's how much they've like immigrated. There was a sterilization program where up to 60% of Puerto Rican women, actually, I think like three quarters were sterilized by the U.S. government because it was like this whole racist operation where they were like, this island's going to get out of control. We need to like manage the population. It's just so crazy what we've done to them. And then to see this whole debate play out today where all these assholes are like, we, why do we owe Puerto Rico anything? It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? 
it's a colony. <laughs> like, what do you mean? So it's like, it sucks because yes, they're in debt and they need to be bailed out. But at the same time, the bailout is just another fake like colonial control board, just like we saw with these emergency management systems in Detroit and all and Flint and stuff. It's like, it's just like another way, like, okay, we created this mess. We've been controlling Puerto Rico's economy for the last hundred years, but at the same time, we're blaming them for being in debt. We're saying you guys fucked up. You all these hedge fund managers and Wall Street billions of dollars. Oh, you can't pay it. Okay, we're just going to enlist this like control board going back to when we first colonized you to control everything going on under this program. It's like Greece. I mean, they're it's like an IMF loan, and they're saying you need to do all this austerity. Minimum wage needs to be lowered to like four fifty an hour. It's just nuts. Um, it's it's so crazy to see this unfolding and i just had no idea any of it you know it's like just one of those things that you just don't we're not taught it in school it's just like one of those things just is off on the side puerto rico exists it's like this thing that we just don't really like talk about but when something like this is happening and you really learn about what happened and what's going on now it's just stunning so i just wanted to tell people about that and, and to check out that episode because damn um and then once you realize it, like I see Puerto Rican flags everywhere, like half the people I meet here now are Puerto Rican. And it's just like, wow, it just like opens your eyes to an entire community around you that's been like displaced, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, isn't there, aren't they still trying to get statehood too? Or did they have it? Yeah. No, they don't have it. They have something called a Commonwealth, which was like a fake imposition of statehood that like really didn't do anything it was just like all right now you guys can have your own elections but you still can't vote in the u.s election it's like you can have your own like fake little control thing here but real no like no real power like they're still under all like economic so of course when the recession happened here and i just saw the big short last night which i loved because i I had no idea actually what happened with the mortgage crisis. And I finally understood it because the movie really explains it well because it's so convoluted and fucked up. And you finally understand what happened. But what happened in Puerto Rico is like an extension of everything that happened here economically. So they they had no growth. So they just were hit so hard and they just never recovered. So it's been like an economic disaster in Puerto Rico ever since that happened here. But of course, like the banks got bailed out and all the shit. And then when you watch the big short, you realize, you know, the whole movie makes it seem like it's the stupidity and no one knew. And wow, these people are so fucking stupid. They built in these low subprime mortgages that were totally screwed and they were going to hit this wall and everyone was going to go, um, you know, in debt and not be able to pay their mortgages. And then you realize at the end that they knew the whole time and that they just knew that the American people would bail them out and they knew the government would bail them out. So like they were just running. They were just running to the bank laughing all the way. And we were the fucking suckers. And even, the, and I like that the movie finally ended it by saying, no, they knew the whole time it was all on purpose. Cause like for, for a part, I thought that they were actually giving these bankers a pass and being like, Oh, they're just so greedy and trying to do all these mortgages that they just had no idea what these mortgages really were. Obvious lie. But anyway, yeah, I mean, it totally screwed up Puerto Rico and it's still, it's still screwed up. So did you watch the big short? No. Um, I'm curious about it though, because I heard it's yeah. kind of like a comedy, syllabus satirical. Yeah. So, and, and yeah, it's yeah, by it's the really guy who made like Anchorman shit. I think. It makes you hate all the like. It was I was not invested in the characters at all. I hated them all because they're all like disgusting, slimy like executives on Wall Street that are taking advantage of these sectors in the banking industry that can bet and f on people's whole lives. You know, like all these fucking minutia in the financial system. So like you hate everyone. And like, but the best part about it was explaining finally what the fuck happened, <laughs> the economic collapse. It was like the first time I got it. 
because then it explains how that led to like the 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 banking collapse and stuff. So it's just it's just really interesting. I would recommend it just for that. I mean, I definitely I wasn't like really like loving the characters and thought that it was like filmed brilliantly, but it was just like the way that it explained it and made it palatable to the general public. I thought was important. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. I I didn't realize that it was. Uh, I mean, to me, it seemed like there had already been movies kind of like it but yeah i mean but not but not exactly about this i mean like i had watched that um i don't remember if it was like a made for tv movie about the bailout oh the um was it inside job no it was like kevin not kevin spacey but it was like basically it was just a movie where like it was all, it had hank paulson a guy playing hank paulson and like mm. showing exactly like how they bailed out all the banks and like why they let you know certain ones close and like how mm-hmm. which bank like which bank got to stay and stuff and like how all those maneuvers were done right right um but yeah no i'm really i'm really interested in that subject i mean it's like we've heard about it a lot but yeah like i don't know exactly couldn't tell you any of the names or faces or yeah. banks or or firms or anything who actually like started it or so yeah and at the end of the day what the the stat that stuck out the most to me was that five trillion dollars? That is that's what's been quoted as the entire amount spent on the whole Middle East endeavors. You know what I mean? Like, think about how much money that is. That was just lost. And those are people's retirement savings. Those are people's homes, lives. Six million people lost their homes. I mean, it just and not one person was put in jail. Not one fucking person was put in jail. It's like, it's just, it's just unbelievable that that amount of money, I mean, it's like the biggest looting in the history of, I don't even know. I mean, I don't even know if there's like another number that compares to that, but like, I, it it really hits you when you see that that's the amount of money that's been spent like since 9-11, you know, like on all the wars and stuff. And it's just like, damn, that's so disturbing. Yeah. And a really, a really good part of the movie. And I don't, this is probably all fictional because I don't believe that these people really had like altruistic ideals when they were trying to figure this out i think that they were just like really greedy and trying to seize this this uh space in the market that they saw that was going to happen but it does portray these people as like the whole time they're like okay this is going to happen um the banks have put out all these or all the mortgage companies have put out all these low subprime mortgages to like get all these people who have like no financial standing to get houses so all this this bubble is going to collapse and it's just going to hit this point where it's going to collapse but then all the Securities and Exchange Commission like rates the mortgages. So all these mortgages are rated like AAA and mortgages have historically been like the most secure financial thing to like invest in because housing, the housing market has always been stable. And all these people were like, the housing markets never crash. You guys are fucking crazy. Like all these like lower rung people across all these agencies were like, you're insane. This will never collapse, all this stuff. And then what they realized at the end of the movie was once it is collapsing and once the people are not able to pay their mortgages because the mortgages are like fake and like fraudulent, that the exchange commission and all these regulatory bodies aren't changing the rates. They, They aren't downgrading them from the AAA status to like B, C, D, whatever, because they're so fucking corrupt. So what you realize in the movie is the all these like financial analysts who are trying to exploit the system and make money off the collapse, off the impending collapse, don't even realize, like they don't understand why they're not making money because they they then they realize that the agencies are just holding up these fake markers of 
like AAA statuses because the agencies are just like whatever we were bribed to give them this status like in this ranking and like Mm -hmm. we're so they weren't even reflecting the actual market is what I'm saying like none of the regulatory bodies were even reflecting it because they were part of this fake bubble exactly and and it wasn't until they had to because it had drastically collapsed then they had to like admit but it shows you how even the financial analysts were like you guys are this fucking corrupt that like the truth is right here and you're still saying that this is not happening like it was nuts and that's what really fucking I mean I don't think that these people really said that but that's what was happening on the back end if that made any sense I don't know if that made any sense but I'm just all no 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 it made sense what I was just thinking while you were saying that is yeah. uh, it reminds me of the Adam Curtis movie, The Trap, where it's, yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of these financial institutions were doing some really corrupt shit. You know, some of them were just purely, pure thief, doing thievery and, and you know, stealing and stuff and, and intentionally destroying people's lives. But, I mean, you have to, you have to also blame the regulatory bodies right. also. Exactly. Because yeah, they rated these loans and 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 stuff as you know A or instead of B or C. I don't know if that's the right language. Yeah, but yeah. The uh, it's it's what Adam Curtis talks about in the trap, where it's like, as long as you know how to fudge the numbers and like massage the the values and the statistics and like inch, you know, like if you use statistics and these sort of metric systems as a barometer for your success and your level mm-hmm, of quality. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, you know, you're going to trick yourself by trying to reach those stats without doing the real legwork to get there. Everybody does it. And the sad thing is, and then Adam Curtis lays out in the movie, that systems themselves and giant entities with thousands and millions of people all end up doing this to themselves at some point in time. It's like a, it's like a weird, like part of human psychology that we cannot see Yet all of our systems are are inherently flawed because of it. Right. Like we haven't, we don't even understand it enough that like, like it's almost like we give, we're, it's almost like all humans have that capability and even societies of like giving ourselves a pat on the back for doing nothing. And that's yeah, sort of exactly. like what, how we exist. And uh, I mean, I don't know if that's, it's not going off on a tangent from like the regulatory bodies, but like they you know, to them, they probably weren't being corrupt. It was just like their standard of quality was like on purpose getting like lower and lower over time. Yeah, so totally. Because that- even them, the Securities and Exchange Commission people were just like, well, what we have to rate these the same. They're like, because the banks will just go or the mortgage companies will just go to the next like person exactly, to yeah. sign off on it. It's like, well, then I'd lose my job. Mm-hmm. It's just like a complete machine operating like that. Exactly like you said. Um, yeah. It's just like a, it's just an illusory system that's based on falsehoods and manufactured mm-hmm. stats. And, and this was just a perfect example of how that, that can even play on and on, even when reality is like punching you in the face. Very interesting um, stuff. And, and two more episodes I just wanted to plug really quick. One, Peter Kuznick, who co-wrote Untold History of the U.S. with Oliver Stone, did this great episode with us about Japan bringing us from the myths about the atomic bomb back to Imperial Japan and basically how Abe now is trying to 
bring Japan back into an empire. It's very interesting. It's really scary too, because going to Japan together, Robbie, and you know, going to the Hiroshima Museum with an inner survivor and just seeing how amazing that that country is and how peaceful and humble and gracious people were and and to ha- and it's kind of interesting it's kind of the same as bush except crazier to me because how did abe get in and how is he doing this shit because we're looking at a population who's like opposed like 80 percent to his policies like these secrecy laws that he's pushing through this like reversal of the article 9 which was the peace constitution how after world war ii the u.s basically removed japan's ability to have a military and was like you're gonna have this like peace constitution now the japanese people loved it they embraced it and and abe reversed that and so many other things. I mean, Okinawa, this another Marine just raped and killed another Okinawan woman. You know, this seems to happen like every year. So now you have these massive protests against the base. But Abe is doing the opposite. But it's like during Bush, I feel like the population was even more splintered. It's just like surreal to see what one administration can do, take it so far in complete contradiction to the will of the people. And Obama, actually, this is what Peter told me was super interesting. There was this PM right before Abe, I forget his name, Hatoyomo Hakuyomo or something. He was basically brought into office because he was like anti-US military, anti-base. And he was like, one of his main tenants was like, it was like Obama. You know, uh-huh. one of his main tenants was like, I'm going to shut down the base. Like, I'm going to like do all this stuff. And then basically Obama himself completely fucked over this guy like totally went in and like destroyed him and paved the way for Abe's militaristic insanity that we're seeing take over Japan now. So it's just a really, and then now you see TEPCO, even though hundreds of thousands are out on the street, we don't want nuclear energy. Fukushima is still a fucking mess. And Abe just doesn't care. I mean, it's just, it's just nuts. And I didn't really realize how bad it was either. So it's just like, you know, it's just nuts. I mean, what do you think about that kind of power for what, so-called democracy to have some guy come in and just like reverse course so quickly well i i guess i'm i'm probably not the best to speak on it in too much detail because i'm a bit ignorant on especially on abe's policies like i i haven't watched this um japan episode you did yet but all i'll say about him is that um, he was prime minister before a long time right, ago, right, right. and he got out of office, and he's back in now. So that's just weird. I mean, you it's know, like we, Putin, but yet we don't call him a dictator. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it. I, I'm pretty sure that their their elected system, like illegally, allowed him to get in. I don't think it was quite like what Putin did in, <laughs> in the exact way. I mean, not saying Putin's. You know, he's not a dictator like other dictators, but he. Uh, you know, he 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 took. He's like, I don't really even understand because I is Medvedev like still the president in Russia? Yeah, that's what's so weird. It's so weird. It's like Putin is just like treated like the president. You know, I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, um, but yeah, I mean, all I remember is when I was in Japan the first time, he was extremely popular. He was treated similarly to Bill Clinton. People absolutely loved him, and. Uh, and uh, yeah, and I, that's all I remember about him. Yeah, really. yeah. Um, but the prime minister before him, I think, was a little bit more liberal and like cool. Um, but even he was weird. Like he was like I don't even remember his name. But the prime minister before him, 
got in trouble because he went in and and went and memorialized a, like a fascist Japanese general's like gravesite. Yeah, that's um, what Abe's doing too. He's like trying to basically whitewash all of Japan's crimes and really? the rape of Nanking. He's like try he's like has at odds with all these like world bodies who are trying to say that that was an official event. <laughs> and he's like I mean it's really crazy. But yeah, I don't really that that is a really good question. I wish that we talked about what his administration was like then and how it's changed. Because I yeah. don't, um, I don't really know why a why he got back in. Like, what was his platform then and now, and then like how it's way crazier now, and what maybe there's like more collaboration with Obama, with the Asia pivot. Because I know during the Korean War we wanted them to reverse the Article Nine thing then, because we wanted to use Japan as a staging ground for Korea, but the people didn't want it, and now somehow we've been able to get him to lift it. And I don't know, maybe we want to use him to for the asia pivot thing and have uh-huh. more of like japanese military involvement there i don't know it's very very hard to even decipher what's going on because there's just so many players yeah i mean there's also rumors that like japan might actually get nuclear weapons too wow and, 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 and like that there's movements being made kind Damn. of in secret um there has been for a while so jesus you know hopefully that doesn't happen um but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it did. Mm. I mean, they are very scared of China. You know, there's right. still a very strong rivalry between the two countries. Yeah, totally. And with us in China, too. You hear everyone talking about it. All the political players are like acting like China is a big military threat. And it's like, I'm pretty sure that there's something economically going on instead of like the Chinese military. Well, yeah, the, chi- the Chinese thing is interesting because it's like for whatever reason, like we've still, the mainstream narrative has still somewhat tabled that right. debate. Like right. we haven't moved there really yet. It's like we're yeah. waiting. For some reason, yeah, it's like we've we're waiting to, to like get rid Russia. of Syria yet. Yeah, like we're still waiting to like knock down the players. Yeah, but China, China is one that we let sort of, you know, just sort of do their thing. And I'm just wondering when we're going to pivot towards them because mm-hmm. it hasn't happened yet um and uh that's going to be interesting because i i think china uh is way more of like a wild card like what they will do militarily you know yeah and, and another interesting thing that china's doing that's really pissing off the u.s is i just interviewed this guy who wrote a book on the imf called failed and it's just like all about how what imf policies really do and you know how they're like they they basically just impose crazy stipulations that keep the developing countries subjugated to the first world that's like the basic tenant of imf loans mm-hmm. and they're you know they're all across the fucking world and they've done just what they're intended to do which is like stunt development create massive austerity and like stunt any sort of political democracy whatsoever and keep in these like strong arm leaders to basically do whatever the fuck private business wants but anyways what china's doing is is issuing giant loans now with zero stipulations to like Africa and shit. So like they're coming out in the world scene and like super challenging the IMF. So, I mean, that's just going to be another reason for the U S military to really hone in on China because they're doing a lot of stuff that's actually fucking up. They're not just like staying isolated and like growing like crazy and taking a lot of production jobs. They're like helping exert their influence in terms of development in countries that we don't want to share. So that's going to be really interesting. It's going to be yeah. a huge thorn in the ass of the IMF. <clears throat> and also like all the BRICS nations and, you know, even like the existence of Telesaur, which I think is much more radical than RT. Because Telesaur is a conglomeration of like pan-Latin American countries that have started this network. 
specifically leftists and like to combat U.S. hegemony and shit like media hegemony. So they're already attacking Telesaur, Venezuela, you know, Maduro almost is out of power. All the right wing is almost has enough signatures to oust him. And Argentina, Macri, whatever the new right wing government has already shut down Telesaur in the whole country, which was like funding the network 16%. So already this network might not exist. And this network is really one of the only international networks, this network I'm saying because I work for them, for the Empire Files. But we just really have to support Telesaur because they are really one of the last global media networks that is challenging this narrative. Um, and it's really scary to see how much under threat they are. I'm, so I'm go like of... Telesaur English and follow them on Facebook. Yeah, it's just astonishing to me that and I don't, I know, and I'm like, I really appreciate what Telesaur is doing and mm-hmm. that they're giving you a platform, but it is really astonishing to me to think that like, you know, besides like Piero Midyar and a few other like mm-hmm. rich people, why isn't like a billionaire or a multimillionaire really like, why aren't more of those people like funding right. like leftist leaning media outlets in this country? And, uh, you know, even The Intercept, for as much money as it has, like, it doesn't do any content really beyond, mostly it's, it's writing. It's, it publishes, you know, written word. It, they don't do podcasts. They don't have, they have video content, but it's more like artsy little short films by random people. But it just surprises me. It's like, we need, we really need something like that. Like, because it, it's, we, because it doesn't have a fucking, the only reason that it's working for Telesaur is because of the objective that it is. It's not to make money. And and you're looking at that fundamental compromise when you're trying to make money versus build an institution that's for like a democratic service to provide information. You can't make money on providing truth because you're going counter to every single money-making entity that would sponsor you. So unless you just have some altruistic billionaire who's just like, here's a billion dollars, I don't give a fuck what you do with it, um, just tell the truth and do good media... I mean, God, how could you ever find someone like that? Because to make billions of dollars, look at George Soros. Oh, that fucking clip where George Soros was like given a commercial by Vice. That was crazy. <laughs> that was crazy. And it's even sadder. Like I was really insulted. You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to lie. I mean, like I, you know, arguably have ripped off Tangerine Dream and homage them several times, like not only a empire files but like in some of the songs in um in a very heavy agenda but what's so funny is like that video came out with like the most like tangerine dream ripoff like song <laughs> ever on the day that edgar frost from tangerine dream like the main guy had died wow it was just such like a weird coincidence that not only vice was like releasing this like hip extremely tangerine dream like influence score soundtrack but it was like a pro like George Soros, like Ukrainian intervention, yeah. like propaganda <laughs> piece. It's like so fucking insulting. It's just like, I don't know. It's just, I mean, I just, to me, stuff like that, that I feel like if, if anybody saw that, who knows oh, that was beyond happening. the pale. That was beyond the pale. That was oh, like just, more offensive than like Obama doing an interview with him. You know? Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. And it I wanted crazy. to say, I don't, I don't want to, I don't know, blow up anybody's spot, you know, but, um, I was, I did speak to three different people who wrote for Vice, and they all thought that that section of the movie was amazing, and they did not know most of it. They were blown away. So um, 
I think that that I mean to me that makes me hopeful that there's just a lot of people out there who for, for one reason or another just aren't paying attention to the fact. Yeah, that because they haven't so scoured it like weird. you. You know what I mean? Like even people who work for them, they probably write for a bunch of different papers and they don't really like scour through Vice. They're just like, great, someone will publish my like FOIAs. But I think yeah. that you compiled, you scoured all this material and put it together in a way that I, I mean, I had no idea and I look at Vice a lot. So I thought it was, yeah, I definitely can see why that would be enlightening for people who've worked there and do work there. Yeah. Everyone should check it out. Um, but yeah, I don't even remember what we were talking about before, but man, we it's so crazy. Ah, oh, fuck. What were we talking about? Totally oh, Telesaur. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is crazy, that Telesaur. It's like really worrisome. I mean, we're yeah. talking about like whole countries that are being completely destabilized right now all across Latin America from the same forces that have always tried. But now it's like 21st century coups where you just have Brazil. What just happened in Brazil with Dilma? how they're, they're just like, you're corrupt. We're going to just fucking unseat you. And it was like, wait, what? Like, how did this happen? And how is this happening? It's like, we no longer need to have like the US military depose people. We could just like have like, it's just like the soft power coups that just happen. And these weird referendums that are completely undemocratic and crazy. And, you know, the US just stays silent and it's just going through. I mean, what's going to happen in Brazil is insane. Argentina is crazy. Venezuela, the same exact thing is happening, and that would be really, really bad. It's really, really scary. Mm-hmm. You know? So I mean, the just, way I look at it is yeah. almost like the CIA used to operate with more of like a direct, you know, they they would literally send, hire someone with a sniper rifle to like assassinate a political leader. Right, right. Nowadays, it's more like, I almost look at what they do as like, that's almost like, you know, you're 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 being direct like it's straight to the point now what i feel like they do is they almost go into all these countries and they put put in like thousands of little time bombs everywhere yeah 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 that are like you know all timed for different times but like they're hoping you know that on some level all these time bombs will go off at once or close enough together will will create a momentum for them to come in there and clean up um and I totally. think that's what they've done in Syria and done in Ukraine and pretty much every all these other governments that we've seen toppled. And you know what's really um, interesting? The only country that it hasn't worked is Cuba. And I truly think it's because they have been able to like just stabilize like a socialist government for so long and like have a strong society who understands what the U.S. has been doing and is trying to do that it's like the U.S. has not been able to succeed there and it just fucking pisses them off so much because they've had a million time bobs set up all over that country for decades but it's just mm -hmm. interesting that like they have not been able to penetrate it and it's been able to do so much in terms of like world health and it's like been able to expose so many contradictions just for existing which is really great but um yeah i mean like venezuela right now is super scary and all over latin america is really scary because it's exactly what you're saying it's just a bunch of like covert shit being inserted fake fronts and think tanks and operatives on the ground and USA. funding of the opposition usaid it's just like it's almost impossible to stand up against it's like a no, miracle it, it if really you can't is, defeat yeah. it's just like unlimited funds and it's all God. based on humanitarianism they're using yeah. liberalism as they cover i mean i don't know if you you know if you remember the very beginning of a very heavy agenda part three um to me, it's like one of the most important insights into how these how these things actually work. And it shows Robert Kagan, even as a very young man, 
laying out these very complex strategies for how to present the religious plight of, you know, Christians being like attacked by Sandinistas in this country. Right. Like how what? important of a strategy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. How important of a strategy that was for the Nicaragua war effort to basically make it seem to to create less empathy for the Sandinistas and like more empathy for like the people who were like um you know so basically supported by the CIA. Right. Um and that's 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 how it works. That's what they do. They use liberalism, they use humanitarianism to get you to take your focus off something else and to focus on their agenda. Right. Um and it's it really does work better during this era in time than any other era that I've seen or that I've studied. And that's yeah. really frightening because yeah. with all this consciousness and this internet news, alternative news, thousands, you know, more people, activists on Twitter and, you know, doing all this research, journalists, it's, it, to me, it still seems like we're in a more dangerous position and, and it almost feels like it's easier to get people... Yeah, of course. You know, They've bought into the liberal interventionist propaganda shift. And that's now now we're just like arguing with people who are like our age, who are supposed to be on our side about their talking what? points. Like, I mean, a lot of the people and some of them I would consider like my colleagues and, you know, some of them I have a lot of respect for. Like, why haven't a lot of those people like admitted at this point in time? You know what? That chemical weapons thing in Syria was really fucking weird. And I don't know, <laughs> I can't believe it, that Assad gassed his own people with Syrian gas right after the U.S. said that if he crossed the red line, we would attack him. Like, that doesn't make sense. And, like, so many people let that go. And that's really dangerous. You cannot let something like that go. Because every time we let them inch forward with a false narrative like that, we lose ground. And, like, right. I always say, like, letting Afghanistan just exist as this, like, oh, it's morally, like, people do not... What I'm saying is there's a passive endorsement of the Afghanistan war to this day from the left. Right, 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 there's right, not right. A, There was never right. a strong argument for why it was immoral or wrong, and there never right. has been. That puts us at a huge disadvantage to fight the power structure. This makes, us, this makes it harder for us to argue in the future for why your humanitarian bullshit is phony. Because we don't, it's like it almost implies that we don't care. Um, you know, unless it's like they shove the lie in our face so hard that we can't look away from it. Mm -hmm. That's not, that shouldn't be the only time where we face these things. We have mm -hmm. to face it whenever it comes up. And like, I think that the Afghanistan war and, and letting that chemical weapons story sort of persist and like poo-pooing people like Seymour Hirsch even for suggesting it wasn't Assad and that was the rebels, like that is um it's like every time those kind of things happen like we get we're at we're just worse and worse off right um as a force to fight against this shit um and sorry i just went off on a tangent but like i just it's just i just think about this a lot lately like how many times the left seems to just turn its back on on its ideals and yeah and it's like layers of myths where even the wmd rationale makes no sense the afghanistan war rationale makes no sense it's like you have to strip away all these layers and ask yourself where does it end you know where yeah. does the justification end you have to have you have to have a fucking line in the sand where you say no it doesn't yeah, matter yeah. Like why would we kill Bin Laden? Like that like the fact that so right. many people accepted that and didn't question that. Right. Why didn't we capture him? Right. We knew where he lived. Like it wasn't like we knew what neighborhood or what building he lived in. We knew the fucking house he lived in. 
Yeah, and You're there was zero, we and there was zero him? people shooting at us. It was just like totally unarmed sense, wives, man. and we just went and executed him. No, and I'm not even going to the place of like, oh, is he dead or alive, or right. was it like, like they pretend no, to kill him then, they had him on his body and ice. None of that shit matters to me. Why didn't we capture him? It's like the most valuable ass intelligence asset of all time, and we just right. murdered him? right. And the reason we said we went into Afghanistan is because they were harboring him. We did not, we literally did not try to get him in Afghanistan. That is a proven fact. This is not a conspiracy theory. We literally did not break up and disrupt any Al-Qaeda training camps in Afghanistan. That's a fact. So why did we go? Why did we go to Afghanistan? Why are we still there? I mean, it's fucking crazy. That is <laughs> And let's end at that note. I think that that's the perfect note to end on. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. Check out Maintaining the World Order, Very Heavy Agenda on Vimeo. Um, rent it or buy it. Must watch all three-part documentary my brother just released. And check out The Empire Files, youtube.com slash empirefiles. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and support Telesaur English because um, a lot of horrible things are going on and, and we got to support the the few media outlets that really give a voice to the uh, marginalized and oppressed around the world. Thank you so much for listening to us talk a bunch of ish about a bunch of stuff. And uh, Robbie, really great talking to you. Yeah, great talking to you too, Abby. And uh, I second the, uh, the recommendation that, that everybody should be watching the Empire Files right now, um, if you, you haven't already. And there's pretty much a new episode every week. Or, or are you doing mm-hmm. every two weeks right now? Every week right now, yeah. Again, Every week. Okay, so yeah, I mean... It's, it's, you know, it's a regular series. And um, the only thing I will say about a he- very heavy agenda is uh, there's going to be a box set uh, that's going to come out in the middle of July with all three DVDs. And there will be an extra DVD um, in the box, a fourth DVD with about a half hour of bonus content. Um, stuff that w- that had to be cut out of the movie, um, some stuff um, at, from that was cut from ab- um, actually an Empire's ep- uh, Files episode that Abby did an interview with Lawrence Wilkerson went into some interesting <laughs> Anthrax um, discussion. So there's going to be some uh, just interesting stuff on there. Um, so everybody check it out. Yeah, absolutely. And and donate to MediaRoots.org. And if you want to donate for the podcast, say it in the information. My brother and I split the donations for the podcast. Um, Thank you so much, everyone, for listening and all your support. And really awesome. Bye.